My name's Greg Knapp. This is the Greg Knapp Experience. Your 20-minute thrill ride for your commute or your workout. Just how high will your gas prices go? We'll get into that. Hey, but don't worry. Mayor Pete says you can just buy a new electric car with all that you know extra money you've got laying around. Biden says he has a detailed strategy to fight Omicron, and they will tell him what it is Thursday on his teleprompter as he gives the speech. Organized thefts are on the rise. Are they coming to your town? And Biden's spending bill includes money for critical race theory? It's all coming up on this edition of the Greg Knapp Experience. Let's go. All right, so I want to start with what Biden's been doing on energy, okay? Biden announced, of course, last week we talked about it, releasing 50 million barrels of crude from our strategic petroleum reserve, which, by the way, is supposed to be for like a real emergency, like a war or something. But, hey, don't worry, it's going to bring down your prices, so it's worth it. But Friday, oil prices fell, so obviously it's working. Well, it was really because of the Omicron variant being announced, and that freaked everybody out. Energy analysts are actually warning, according to oilprice.com, that the release from the SPR will not have the desired effect. Many barrels that the U.S. or its partners in Asia and U.K. release, no matter how much, OPEC can withhold more and for longer because, you know, together, OPEC and Russia, they have about 50% of the world's oil reserves, so they're holding all the cards. And they explain that the SPR crude is sour crude. Refiners don't like it because it needs additional processing, and that requires natural gas, which is also expensive right now. Stephen Shork, editor of the Shork Report. It's not going to work simply because the Strategic Petroleum Reserve any country's SPR, is not there to try to manipulate price. There's a considerable amount of bets out there that we will see $100 a barrel oil. $100 a barrel oil. Look, this type of thinking is not new. Everybody knows who studies oil that releasing from the SPR does not do what the Biden administration was telling you that it would do. It's totally political. Biden even knows this. They put it up on his teleprompter, I'm sure, at some point. So, the whole point is, look what I did. Look what I did, America. I'm trying to help you. But those evil oil company barons are just so greedy. And those people at OPEC are just so awful. And yeah, so it's not my fault. By the way, they're only talking about releasing, remember, 50 million barrels. We use 8 million barrels a day just in the United States of America. And the planned release of those 50 million is supposed to happen over several months several months. So less than a million barrels per day will be released on average. And the other 32 million barrels are really offered on long-term loans. Yeah, that's going to do an awful lot. Look, OPEC and Russia account for half the world's oil production and they want it tight. So tight supply means increased prices but, you know, we could do things like encourage more drilling here in the United States of America, like was done under Trump, where we opened up Anwar and all these federal lands. And we were, you know, quickly becoming this huge exporter of energy and there was more investment going on. If you did that right now, if you opened up all the lands to drilling and you encouraged investment by reducing the cost, they're talking about increasing the cost right now, then you'd get oil boom towns, man, and you would get good jobs, oil and gas, good jobs. You would have less dependence on OPEC and less dependence on these countries around the world that hate us like we were doing, and prices would go back to where they were during the Trump administration, but they don't want that. Really, if you look at this, 
the Biden administration and the far lefties, but I repeat myself, do not want the gas prices to come down long term. They want them up so that you'll buy the electric vehicles. You think I'm kidding? Well, I've, I've given you some examples. I'll give you another one today. By the way, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has berated OPEC, you know, for too much tightness. But, but even though they were set up as a monitor of oil markets with the purpose of, of avoiding severe shortages, in recent years, they focused increasingly on the green energy transition. You know, just earlier this year, the IEA called for suspension of all new oil investment. Now think about that. The International Energy Association calling for a suspension of all new oil investment. And now they're urging producers to invest more in new production and to open up and let out more oil. Make sense? Sure. Absolutely. Eric Lendrum pointing out that the Biden administration is proposing another ban on drilling in the oil-rich state of New Mexico. Yep, November 15th, Biden announced a proposal for a 20-year ban on oil and gas drilling in Chaco Canyon. It's in northwest New Mexico. The justification? Well, it's near the Chaco Cultural National Historical Park. It's a World Heritage Site. And as such, the proposal would see a halt to all oil and gas drilling on federal lands within 10 miles of the park. And on the same day he announced the ban, Biden hosted a summit of Native American tribal leaders at the White House. Was Senator Elizabeth Warren there? No, I, I don't think she was allowed in anymore. Uh, Biden claimed his administration would work to comprehensively incorporate tribal ecological knowledge into future efforts to fight global warming. I thought it was climate change. Well, it all just depends on what they want to say that day. Yeah, that's going to be great for you, too. Get ready for that to help your gas price. And Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, was on MSNBC, and he was asked about the high gas prices. And Mayor Pete said, hey, don't worry about it, because, look, families can just go out and buy an EV, an electric vehicle, because they have a $12,500 discount. What he means is that the rest of us, you and me, we're paying people to go buy an electrical vehicle. And most of the people who are buying an EV are pretty well off to begin with because most of us can't afford an, an EV. If you compare apples to apples, according to Car and Driver, the difference between an average gas-powered car and an EV, if you're comparing apples to apples, 19 grand. Well, we're giving you 12.5. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That means we've only got a few more thousand to worry about here. Um, repair costs are higher still Then you. Why? Well, because they're different types of vehicles and it takes an awful lot to fix them. Now you also have to look at the cost associated with charging your vehicle, right? Car and drivers also talked about it. And we've talked about it before on the show that if you really want to charge up your car, and especially if you want to charge it up quickly, you need to put an electric charging station in your own in your own house, in your own garage. That costs an awful lot of money. Then are you going to find places to do it around the country? And then, by the way, if we all shift to EV and we're all charging up our cars at night, what is that going to do to the electric grid that's already suffering? By the way, nobody's talking about increasing the energy that will continually pump for us, not whether the wind blows or whether the sun shines, but you know, stuff like natural gas, oil, coal, Nuclear. I mean, if you really want to go green, nuclear is the way to go. Look what it's done in France. But oh, no, 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 can't do that. So what's going to happen when we plug all this stuff in? You've got a regulated price on energy, on, on electricity, right? So if everybody plugs it in, what are you going to have? 
Are they going to let the prices just go up through the roof? No, that would be politically untenable. So what will they do? We'll have shortages. We'll have rolling blackouts or rolling brownouts. Please don't plug your car in from X amount of time to X amount of time. But that's when I'm home. I got to get ready to drive tomorrow. Too bad. No, no, no. Mayor Pete says don't worry about it. You can get a $12,500 discount to get that EV. And families who own that vehicle will never have to worry about gas prices again. Yeah, just electrical outlet problems and, you know, blackouts. The people who stand to benefit most from owning an EV are often rural residents who have the most distance to drive, who burn the most gas, and underserved urban residents in areas where there are higher gas prices and lower income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we have to see this as not a luxury item. If we can make the electric vehicle less expensive for everybody, more people can take advantage. You know who, what does that over time? Is the market, when they come up with the stuff that works. But no, instead we're going to do this. You can tell I'm a little upset about the whole energy thing. I'm going to calm down. I'm going to, it's going to be a little bit easier for the rest of the show. But in just a second, I want to talk to you about the Biden strategy for the Omicron variant of COVID. But if you're enjoying the show, I'm really asking you to be part of the movement. Help us combat the far left version of America, of being the systemically awful place, and really rally around what makes America exceptional. So please like my page on Facebook, the Greg Knapp Experience page, and then subscribe to the podcast, like it, follow it, whatever you do. Tell three friends to tell three friends. And if we continue to do that, we can really grow the show. Thanks so much for being a part of it. So the Biden strategy for Omicron. Vaccinations, not shutdowns. Maybe. What do you mean maybe? Well, I'll get to that in just a second. But uh, John Brown reporting on this, that Biden Monday said he will unveil his plan Thursday to tackle the new Omicron variant as he reads it off the teleprompter that they give him. He did not say that. Well, that's what's going to happen. Maybe he'll read it a little before he reads the teleprompter. The strategy will not include more lockdowns. It will rely on vaccinations. Uh-oh. What do you mean, uh-oh? Well, he was pressed on why he was taking shutdowns off the table. And he said this. If people are vaccinated and wearing their masks, there's no need for the lockdowns. So how many people have to be vaccinated and how many people have to be wearing the mask before you rule out the lockdown? And are we going to have a certain number of deaths that will come where politically Biden will have to lock it down? Because, you know, his party's all about the lockdowns and the shutdowns. And if you're not doing that, then you're just not trying, Buster. I don't know, man. It worries me a little bit. It worries me a little bit. When you've already had more people die on his watch than you had on Trump's watch, and he said that as many people that died on Trump's watch, that person should not be president anymore. Yet somehow Biden's still president. Biden said Americans who are eligible for a booster shot have no excuse for not getting one, except maybe they don't want one or there's health reasons or there's religious exemptions. But those are not real reasons. On Thursday, I'm going to be putting forward detailed strategies for how to deal with this new variant, he said. And that is not lockdowns and shutdowns, but more widespread vaccination, more boosters, more testing and more. So more of the same that we've been doing for the last two years that doesn't seem to have worked. Well, it is working. It's working about as well as it's probably going to work. I think you just got to get used to understanding that the COVID's going to be around like the flu. And hopefully it's going to get less and less deadly every year. And we will use vaccines. We will use boosters. We will use the new pills coming from some of these pharmaceutical companies that are therapeutics once you get sick that will keep it from being severe enough that you have to go to the hospital. We can use the monoclonal therapies. Yes, we can use ivermectin and hydrochloroquine. We can throw the kitchen sink at it, and all that's great, and we have to understand that still it's not going to eradicate this, and we're going to have to learn to live with it. Everything he just said in that strategy is exactly what Trump was doing. 
And when Trump did it, instead of lockdowns and shutdowns, the Democrats ripped him for it. In fact, some of them blamed the deaths on him. In fact, one of those people that blamed deaths on Trump was Biden, saying he was responsible for it. That's blaming him, right? Mm-hmm. Kayla Wheeler has written this piece on the vaccines about the courts. See, a federal judge Monday blocked Joe Biden's administration from enforcing a coronavirus vaccine mandate on thousands of healthcare workers in 10 states. See, 10 states sued. And it was states like Alaska, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming. Similar lawsuits are pending in other states. And this was about the federal government telling healthcare workers who help provide federal health care, Medicaid and Medicare, that they had to get vaccinated. And they said, well, you don't have the right to do that. So there are two things here. First, that one's kind of narrow where I could see the federal government trying to say, well, if you're going to work with us, you have to do it and trying to use that thing. The court said no. But what's even broader is the other one that the court has already said no about. And that was a federal court placing a hold on their requiring the 100 employees or more private companies to mandate vaccines for their workers. And that was shot down because there is no constitutional authority for the federal government to do that at all. If there's any constitutional authority, it would be for the states under limited emergency circumstances. So the court there said... CMS seeks to undertake an area of traditional state authority by imposing an unprecedented demand to federally dictate the private medical decisions of millions of Americans. Such actions challenge traditional notions of federalism. Absolutely right. Now, how about this one that just happened on Monday? It's about the federal government saying, hey, if you're a healthcare uh, organization and you are providing federal health care, Medicaid and Medicare, then we have the right to tell you you got to get vaccinated. Federal court said no. The court order said the federal centers for Medicare and Medicaid had no clear authority from Congress to enact the vaccine mandate for providers participating in those two government health care programs for the elderly, disabled and poor. Wow, he's getting shot down hard. And then we move to one of the problems with these vaccine mandates. Dan O'Donnell reporting the largest children's hospital in Wisconsin has been struggling to care for the patients injured in the Waukesha Christmas parade attack in large part because of staffing shortages stemming from its COVID-19 vaccine mandates. They had multiple sources for the story. See, 18 children were brought to the Children's Wisconsin-Milwaukee Hospital from the man running them down with his SUV. And when they got there, there weren't enough people to treat them. Several remain in critical or serious condition. An eight-year-old boy died of his injuries last Tuesday. The hospital still treating seven victims. And according to one nurse, it was a nightmare. We just don't have enough people. And supervisors were frantically calling in everyone they could, but it wasn't enough. We're taking care of everyone the best we can, but it's hard. They didn't have enough people on hand. Why? A high-ranking official at Children's, speaking on condition of anonymity, said the hospital currently has hundreds of open positions and attributes much of it to the vaccine mandate. The Children's Wisconsin website lists 239 open positions at its Milwaukee hospital and more than 450 across all its campuses. Now, the hospital system's religious exemption requests were due September 15. See, they've already done their mandate. And it was reported that 70% of them were denied. Wow. October 14, Children's was forced to close its Delafield Clinic until the end of the year because of severe staffing shortages. One source. 
This is because of the mandate. People either quit because their exemptions were denied or didn't even bother to apply. They just started looking for other jobs. And this is why I say the, mac the vaccine mandate is dangerous. Because when you are forcing people to make this decision of take a medication they don't want or quit or be fired, some people are going to quit or be fired. And that means you're going to be losing all this experience and these great workers and all these very important fields like healthcare and, and police and fire and pilots and on and on and on. Not the way to go. L. Reynolds is giving us an update on how they're even reporting in the mainstream media the Waukesha mowdown with the SUV, Daryl Brooks Jr., the suspect. I told you yesterday how CNN and WAPO were tweeting out and had headlines that blamed it on a car. The car did it. Yeah. So how's the mainstream media continuing to report this? Well, as L. Reynolds wrote last night, as of this writing, the last time the New York Times mentioned Daryl Brooks' name, the suspect, was on November 25, four days ago. The Washington Post last mentioned November 23rd. The silence, despite Brooks having a newsworthy history of calling for violence against white people, along with anti-Semitic and pro-Hitler comments. So think about this. If a murder suspect, which you know could be portrayed in any way as some kind of a white supremacist, had made pro-Hitler comments, this would be front page news. Joe Reed would still be talking about it. Um, if this was done with a gun instead of with an SUV, it would still be running in a loop on CNN. But somehow, this is not a big deal. The Waukesha massacre looks pretty much like domestic terrorism, right? But you won't see that in the mainstream media, even though they were just recently talking about public school parents going to the school board meetings and getting upset about it as possible domestic terrorism. You're starting to see a little bit of the double standard. On the morning after the attack, by the way, the New York Times put the news on its 22nd page. And last week, the Washington Free Beacon reported CNN was not featuring a single story about the Waukesha strategy, tragedy excuse me, on its homepage as of Wednesday afternoon. CNN has not even tweeted Daryl Brooks' name. Neither has the New York Times or the Washington Post. And MSNBC analyst Clint Watts referred to the attack as an accident Rachel Maddow never mentioned Brooks' name. It's fine. It's, it's you know, come on. Don't get worried. <sighs> Meanwhile, Salvation Army has withdrawn its guide that asks white supporters to apologize for their race. <laughs> that's, that's good, isn't it? See, I love the Salvation Army locally. I think they do amazing work. They help homeless people get back on their feet. I don't know about their national headquarters and their international headquarters and who writes these guides, but they had written a guide, an, a, a, a let's talk about racism guide, and it asked white supporters to deliver sincere apologies for their race and the past sins of the church. But they have rescinded this now that the donors got upset. The Salvation Army's response to false claims on the topic of racism is their statement. See, they're not really admitting they did anything wrong. The organization denies the purpose of the guide or subsequent discussions revolving around the guide were meant to tell anyone how to think. No, just what to say. The group has also opted to withdraw the guide for appropriate review by the International Social Justice Commission. That tells you a lot right there. There is no such thing as social justice. There is simply justice. 
See, social justice is this thing where they're claiming it's all about equality, wanting to make sure everybody's treated the same, but it's not. No, no, no. It's about equity. It's about redistributing resources. It's not about equal opportunities. It's about equal outcomes, even when that means treating people unequally. See, they believe, the people who believe in the social justice stuff, that any difference in outcome over groups of people, and we just put these people into groups based on their skin color or some other, uh, what would you call it? So, some other trait in order to lump them together in a group. Any difference in outcome over groups must be due to discrimination. Must be. Can't be any other reason. So you must use all forces, including government forces, to punish some and reward others. That's equity. That's not equality. And that's not justice. Jim Banks reporting that the so-called Build Back Better bill that the House Democrats have pushed, the big spending plan, 2,500 pages, has critical race theory sprinkled through it. Page 718 of the bill includes $25 million for funding CRT training in medicine and nursing schools to promote health equity. There's that word again, equity. Not equality, equity. By the way, they won't call it critical race theory, of course. Equity, equal outcomes, not equal inputs. And so does that mean if one group isn't getting the same, the same response as another that you decrease the treatment on one group? or you ration the care, or you, no, who knows? There are line items like that sprinkled throughout the Build Back Better plan, according to Jim Banks, areas like Medicaid, business grants, public schooling, infrastructure development, and we better find out about it before it becomes law. Casey Harper reporting a little bit more on the CRT that federal taxpayers have funded a program paying students $5,000 to receive training in critical race theory. Yep. Started in 2016 under the Obama administration. And they awarded its first five-year grant of $1.1 million to North Carolina Central University. It was for training college students in critical race theory. And at that point, they actually used the words. This is the 2016 grant. One core feature of the fellowship is the eight-week summer research institute in which fellows will be introduced to critical race theory as well as mixed methods, research techniques, as a means of studying issues such as teacher quality, education policy, and race and social justice in education. Again, there's no such thing as social justice. There is justice. So that was in the 2016 grant, critical race theory, right in there. The 2021 grant that they've just done again for version 2.0 has the exact same wording, except it leaves out the words critical race theory. See, we're not teaching critical race theory anymore, as far as you know, by the way it's worded. Yeah, exactly. The program is called the Research Institute for Scholars of, e of Equity, or RISE, and it promises to produce, quote, a cadre of scholars who value and advance equity. These students receive a $5,000 stipend, money for food and housing, a travel allowance, and according to the promotional materials, RISE students are trained to use critical race theory as a means of evaluating teacher quality and other things. Some of the students go on to be teachers, but the program also puts an emphasis on training students with, quote, research careers that will inform policy and practice in education, end quote. So in other words, getting CRT into your schools. 
According to Jonathan Butcher, education expert at the Heritage Foundation, this is an example of federal funding for CRT at the post-secondary level that also has an impact on K-12 schools based on the goals and activities of the fellowship. And it's not just at that one university. Various schools have been involved over the years. Penn State, University of North Carolina, Wilmington, Duke, University of Pittsburgh, University of South Carolina, University of New Mexico, and on and on. And now they just got another $1.5 million grant under the Biden administration for RISE 2.0. Your money at work. Hey, I was talking about the rule of law and is it broken last week? And we've got more now. You, you know about those organized thefts that happened over the Thanksgiving holiday. Well, they continued all throughout the weekend. Deanna Paul pointing out a string of organized retail thefts continuing. A Best Buy in Minneapolis becoming the latest victim of a nationwide wave over the past two weeks, stores have been targeted by groups of people. They smash windows. They take the merchandise. They often resell the stolen goods online through fencing networks. So now retailers are advocating for federal legislation that would make the online reselling of stolen goods more difficult. Yeah, and how about we actually enforce the law? See, the way we get this, as the rule of law is ignored by our politicians, then there's a breakdown in the system. Violent crime is spiking. Theft is spiking. When you allow BLM and Antifa riots to go with virtually no punishment and you actually excuse them, when you have very few of those people being arrested, when you have shoplifting laws changing in California so that you almost never get arrested for it, are you really shocked when you get more of this? And when is it going to hit the banks? I mean, why, why should the police respond to a bank robbery any more than they should a Best Buy robbery? The impact on all of us is going to be severe. Uh, businesses, especially small businesses, will go under. Um, bigger businesses will close their stores in certain areas. We're already seeing it with CVS stores in San Francisco. It's going to increase the cost for everybody else to make up for the money that they're losing through the theft. It's going to hurt our quality of life in our neighborhoods. All of this is going on while we're, well, you know, you just got to understand the struggle that some people are going through. It. No, you don't steal. It's that easy. And if you do, you should go to jail. Joseph Simonson reporting on Biden administration ignoring the law again. The Biden administration has yet to publicly disclose information on the number of illegal immigrants in the United States. That's a violation of congressional guidance, a departure from federal transparency standards. The Department of Homeland Security has given Congress the report. They have not released it to the public. Well, the Washington Free Beacon reached out to every House and Senate office, copied on the report, and none of the offices, uh, including outspoken critics of the Biden administration's immigration policy, even Republicans, would offer comment. So why, why is no one going to do what is required by law to release this publicly? And why are they hiding it? Anna Ginatelli has also reported that more than 6 million illegal aliens in the United States would be granted amnesty and allowed to obtain government benefits by the House Democrat Build Back Better Act. The Congressional Budget Office reviewed it. They said 6.5 million non-citizens who live in the U.S., largely as a result of illegally crossing the border, would be granted parole and immediately go from being unlawfully present to lawfully present, and they would be able to obtain government benefits. Is that why you elected Joe Biden? Greg, I didn't elect him. I know. The rest of the people, is that really... Is that the rule of law? My name is Greg Knapp.
This is the Greg Knapp Experience.